Good morning, friends. It is Wednesday morning, which means it's time for Bible study. We are in Genesis chapter 38 through 40 today. Um, would love to get you all checked in, let people know that you are here. So as you join, let people know down below, say hi. I see we've got a few people here. Hey, Dottie. Let people know that you are here. Check in with us so we can get this rolling. Um, today, Genesis 38 through 40 um, is a really excellent story. We are still in the story of Joseph, um, my favorite in Genesis. And so um, as we gather our group together, um, I want to make sure that you all know that Andrew Lloyd Webber has offered his musicals on YouTube for free. And if you haven't yet watched it, we watched it as a family a couple days ago, but Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was the first that he put up on his channel. Um, his channel's name is The Shows Must Go On. The Shows Must Go On. Um, and so it's YouTube, you can stream it anywhere. The plays will be free. And I wanna say he's putting up one a week so that you know it kind of continues nice and slowly while we are all sheltering in place. Um, but Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was the first. So go on, watch Joseph, it's a great show. I will tell you that um, my family kind of, I think I'll watch it for the first time maybe, it's the Donny Osmond version. Um, and it is goofy. Um, and it is delightfully goofy. And I think that any of you who have children at home, they will think it's a touch crazy, um, but it sure is fun. So go on, the shows must go on. Thank you to Weber for sharing all of his stuff with us while we are all stuck at home. Um, a reminder that I love questions. And so do ask your questions as we go along. Monica Rosser is here helping to facilitate questions in the thread below. And so as you have comments or questions, please ask them. It helps me a huge amount for you to ask questions because it helps to pinpoint um, or to focus what we are teaching and to help us all learn a bit better. And so um, do two things. Check in below, tell everyone you're here, um, say hi to your neighbors, people that you may not have seen physically for a while. Um, or if you're new to this group, let everyone know that you're here and where you're from. Um, it's always fun to see people who are outside of Dallas tuning in to this as well. And then as you have questions, ask those questions so that we can help pinpoint the best way to spend this hour together. So again, Genesis chapter 38 is where we will begin. Let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, for the beauty of this earth and for the mystery of love. And we ask that you open all of us, all of our hearts and minds to the way your spirit will move. Help us to put down all of the things that weigh on us, those things that cause us stress or worry or anxiety. Help us to empty ourselves of that for this next hour so we can make space for your spirit to fill us up. May each one of us be inspired by the stories that you have passed down generation to generation that they may inform the way we live today and help us to bring about your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we ask especially today for your prayers for all of those who are sick or ill, that your healing touch may be upon them, and for all of those who help care for the sick or the ill all around the world, 
that they be given strength and courage and wisdom to do the best work they can do. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, let's start with chapter 38 of Genesis. We begin verse 1. Um, oh, I should tell you that the scope of this lesson, this is what I typically write on my flip chart, and I don't have my flip chart with me. I've thought about getting the flip chart from the church just because, you know, if you've ever been with me in class, you know I like drawing maps and I like putting up whatever. I think it's helpful for the visual learners. Um, and so do write this down if you're taking some notes. We've got three sections of today's lesson. The first, I'm calling Judah and Tamar a hot mess because it is a hot mess. And the second section is Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. And the third section is the cupbearer and the baker. So we've got Judah and Tamar, a hot mess, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, and the cupbearer and the baker. Those will basically track the three chapters that we will be in today. So first off, Judah and Tamar, a big hot mess. So let's look at chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adelamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son whom she named Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was a Chezeb when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife, so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So we'll pause there. That's a lot. And as I told you, this is uh, a hot mess. And so this beginning of chapter 38 is the kind of thing that um, I won't say you hear in Sunday school, in the preschool Sunday school class very often. Um, this is not exactly that uh, pastoral scene. Um, you know, it's like the story of Noah, right? You always see the story of Noah told with the animal sticking their head out of the ark and the rainbow. You don't get drunk Noah on the beach. Okay, there are just parts of the stories that we like and parts we don't really like. And so this is one of those chapters where it's just messy. And we as human people can kind of get the messiness. Um, and this sort of messiness is going to matter to us. And so we'll get there. Um, but first, I want to acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's a mess. Okay, so the story begins pretty simply, right? Judah, who is one of Jacob's 12 sons moves away. So Judah moves away from his brothers and his father, and he finds a local girl who remains nameless, and he has some kids, you know, as you do. Three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and he finds a wife for Ur named Tamar. But for an undisclosed reason, Ur is found to be wicked, and so God puts him to death. 
Um, let's stop there and just say it is almost certainly likely that the way the story is being told, it's not that God somehow smote him, right? God isn't really like putting to death in the literal sense, but somehow Ur died and Ur likely died young. And because Ur died young, as people were telling the story, the story became that somehow God was not happy, right? Because you don't die young unless something is wrong. And so Ur was just not happy, um, did not make God happy. So as the story goes on and on and the oral tradition continues, what we get is God put Ur to death, okay? That just repeats itself with Onan. We do not know why Ur is wicked, but we get a glimpse into why Onan might be wicked. So Onan, the second son, is given to Tamar to help her bear children. So we'll pause there to say that Judah, the father, right, relies on the convention of a brother taking his deceased brother's wife. And this is really for two reasons. One, it's to honor the deceased brother. That's a, that's a real thing, right? So a brother dies young, the other brother takes on the responsibility of honoring his memory and helping his family continue. The other has to do with kind of the security of the widow. So if you imagine Judah and his family, they've moved away, they've established themselves, they're trying to remain secure, build some wealth. And when you've got a son who dies, there is a, an increased vulnerability. And when there's an increased vulnerability, you try to shore up that vulnerability as best you can. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to bring the widow into the family in a different way. And so the next oldest brother would often take the widow into his nuclear family and help that widow to bear, either bear children for the first time, like in this story, or to bear more children. But either way, the widow remains secure. Now, there is another option. There is another option if a woman's husband dies, that woman could return to live with her parents, right? To live in her father's house. And I speak this way because obviously men are the ones that kind of hold the wealth and the power and the authority. And so women are safe when they're under the umbrella of a man, but vulnerable when they're not. And so the widow really has two options either stay in her husband's family or go back to her own family under the care of her father. Under the care of her father, although in the short term might be a good idea, is not a long-term solution because odds are we as children will bury our parents, right? That is the natural order of things. And so although she could go back and stay with her father and be safe for a short term, it's natural that her father would die before her and that would leave her vulnerable again. And so really, first preference, best choice, is to be with her deceased husband's brother because about the same age and will stay within the family. All right, so Onan takes Tamar, but we learn that Onan, son number two, does not want to have children for his brother. And so we're told that he spills his semen on the ground every time he goes into Tamar. And I think we'll just leave that there because we all understand what's happening. And so cut to the chase. 
Tamar never gets pregnant from Onan. And Onan is perceived as also being wicked. And as I said, we get a glimpse as to why perhaps that might be. And so Onan is also put to death. So now Judah has lost two of his sons, Ur and Onan. So he's got one left, Shelah. And at first we see that Judah says to Tamar, hey, go back to your father for a bit, right? Let Shelah grow up. And the implication here is that then Judah would ask Sheila to take Tamar under his umbrella to protect her. But then we get this little note about Judah. For he feared that he too would die like his brothers. That's Sheila, right? So Judah here is actually being a little deceptive because he begins to wonder, is his house cursed? Because he's lost two sons, he really doesn't want to lose a third son. And so he, in effect, deceives Tamar, saying, go back to your father's house, when he really has no intention of having Sheila take Tamar, because he doesn't want Sheila to die too. So let's keep going. Let's lurk, beginning at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep herds, he and his friend, Hira, an Aldolamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Sheila was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. Okay, pause there, right? Tamar, dutifully, went back to her father's house, kind of waiting it out, waiting for Sheila to grow up. And now Tamar sees, hey, Sheila is grown up. So Judah likely has no intention of giving Tamar to, Ju to excuse me, Judah has likely no intention of giving Tamar to Sheila to be cared for. And so Tamar in this moment understands that she has been deceived and so rather than licking her wounds she owns her power and she wants to make sure that if she's going to get deceived then she's going to deceive as well and maybe she'll come out ahead and so she takes off the mourning garments of a widow and puts on something that looks good and she goes off to intercept judah on his way to this town timnah she puts herself in a position where Judah may not recognize her. So let's look at verse 15 as the story continues. When Judah saw her, Tamar, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, which is like the best pickup line ever. Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, I'm just going to tell you, that's kind of an awesome story, right? So Tamar has been wronged here, right? Her husband dies young. She should be able to have children with her husband's brother, but Onan just disrespects her over and over and over again. He dies too, 
And when you think Judah might do the right thing, Judah says, I don't want to lose my third son, so why don't you go back to your father's house? So Tamar is over there thinking, what's going to come of me? And so Tamar just grabs the bull by the horns, and she goes and she deceives Judah into getting her pregnant. So she has deceived her father-in-law into getting her pregnant, which is what she really wants, because having a child is going to add to her security. The plot thickens, because Tamar now has a secret. Judah doesn't know. Judah has gone on his way thinking that he's had a little fun with a prostitute and he intends to bring her a little kid, a little goat at some point as payment. Tamar ultimately comes back and reveals her deception to Judah and Judah is shamed. At the end of this chapter, we find that Judah has in effect been significantly humbled here. And he kind of takes responsibility for doing the wrong thing by not giving Tamar to Sheila so that she can be safe for the rest of her life. Now, let's pause. That is the point of chapter 38. And you may be sitting there wondering, where in the world does chapter 38 fit into all of this, right? So we have this great story of, jo of Joseph coming on, right? Jacob has all these kids. They're all sitting there. Joseph is a twerp. He's unaware of himself. He likes to flaunt his favoritism in front of his brother. His brothers get mad. They sell him. And then it's like the story just cuts off and we get this weird moment with Judah and Tamar. So what is this all about? Judah, if you remember, in chapter, chapters before 38, is the one who comes up with the idea of selling Joseph. So the brothers thought for a minute that they were going to kill Joseph. Reuben comes along and says, hey, don't kill him. Do something else. Just, you know, show him that he shouldn't be such a twerp. Judah's the one, as they're eating lunch, who says, hey, instead of killing Joseph, let's get something for him. Let's make some money. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites who are going down to Egypt. Judah is why Joseph gets sold. Fast forward to chapter 38. Judah moves away from the family and, you know, he's doing pretty well for himself. But Judah is a little too full of himself. And this whole story is about Judah being humbled. And why is it important that Judah be humbled? Because Judah needs to learn what is most valuable in this world, right? Judah needs to learn that what is most valuable is people. And when he learns to value people, not just himself or wealth, he will be ready to do a very important thing very soon. In just a few chapters, Joseph becomes very powerful in Egypt. And while there's a famine, Jacob's sons come to visit Egypt to try and buy some grain. And Joseph tests them to find out if they've really learned from what they did to him. If they have, in effect, repented and reconciled the awful thing they did to Joseph before Joseph will take them in. And when he tries to test them, he, uh, I guess you would say, he targets Benjamin, 
who is Rachel's only other son. And as far as the brothers are concerned, the only son of Rachel who's still alive. And it's Judah, who through this story has been changed, has been transformed, who is ready to give himself in order to save Benjamin. And in a sense, he's ready to make right what he did to Joseph by saving Benjamin's life. And in that moment, Joseph knows that the brothers have gotten better. They've improved. And Judah is the one that represents that betterment. Chapter 38 helps us to understand what Judah has gone through in order to understand why Judah goes from the one who sells Joseph to the one who saves Benjamin. Make sense? All right. That's the end of the first section and the end of chapter 38. I want to remind you that questions are great, so please ask your questions in the thread below. Monica is here to help navigate those questions, facilitate those questions. Um, and so as you ask those questions, she'll ping me so that I'm able to address those questions here. So if you've got any about chapter 38, now's the time type them below. Um, and if you've just joined us in the last few minutes, we'd love to know that you're here. So check in, let us know you're here. And if you're new to this class, or maybe you don't come very often, let us know where you're from, especially if you're not from Dallas, because it's really fun to see the people who are tuning in from other places. So I haven't gotten any questions yet. So I'll take a little drink and maybe see... No questions so far? All right, must be all clear. We're gonna move on now to the second section of today's lesson, Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. We are in chapter 39. Let's just start right at the beginning, 39 verse one. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. You know, it would be helpful if we had more definite pronouns as we work through this. That's what I always think about the Bible. Um, so here's the gist, right? We're back on to Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He has now been taken down to Egypt, and he has, in effect, been put in a market of sorts. And Egyptians have come and bought stuff. It could be stuff. It could be people. Potiphar, is a relatively strong person, right? He's described as an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. So the captain of Pharaoh's guard is going to be a pretty powerful and wealthy man. And so I imagine that Potiphar, or perhaps one of Potiphar's other servants, went down to the market looking at what was for sale and saw Joseph. Now, just imagine here. Joseph is described as a good-looking boy right? Joseph is a smart boy. Joseph is likely literate, articulate, bright-eyed, young. All of these things contribute to Joseph being a very significant cut above the rest of the 
items or people for sale in Egypt. And so Potiphar, who must be wealthy and is certainly powerful, picks the best, the cream of the crop. And Joseph is that cream. And so he brings Joseph into his house. And the story seems to imply that Potiphar gives Joseph some responsibilities and those responsibilities grow over time and, jo and Joseph is continuing to be successful. We see as the story is told that God was with Joseph, right? God was with him and helped Joseph do well over and over and over again to the point that he effectively ran Potiphar's house. We may call this like in Dallas, right? Running the family office. And so Joseph is running the family office for Potiphar, and then stuff happens. I see a question over here. We're going to pause this section of the story and hit chapter 38 real quickly. Marianne asked, um, is there a parallelism of the importance of being the firstborn when Tamar bore twin sons? Yes. So Marianne's referencing the very end of chapter 38 that I didn't read to you. Um, there is a, an odd little scene where Tamar is pregnant with twins from Judah and the babies are described as breach. And one, this just is a horrible physical moment. Um, any woman who's had a child knows that this is gonna is like the most unpleasant part of this entire story. Um, the twins are there, and one reaches out its arm, and the effectively the nurse with Tamar ties a little band around the arm, the wrist of the firstborn, because I presume she thought the child was coming out, but then the arm goes back in, which is just ugh. Um, that's, I just, I feel for Tamar that hurts. And so then the other child is born first. And so we have this very odd story where you've got twins wrestling and one tries to come out first. So maybe they're technically the firstborn, but the other actually comes all the way out first. And so you've got this, this wrestling that actually harkens back to Jacob and Esau. So what you're seeing here is the loop of the story that repeats itself, the redundancy, and Tamar is reliving what happened to Jacob and Esau. Really, what happened to Rebecca, right? With Jacob and Esau fighting in her womb and then kind of carrying each other out. Remember when Jacob grabbed Esau's heel on the way out, which is another horrible way to have a birth? Um, and so Tamar has effectively inherited the same problematic kind of birth. And we really don't know much more than that. Um, there's not a lot of conclusions we can draw from that, except that there's a, this is meant to draw the connection back to Jacob and Esau with the narrative loops. So let's jump back into chapter 39, right? We've got Joseph in Potiphar's house and Joseph is doing really well for himself and Potiphar's put him in charge of a lot of stuff and you'd think that things might just be working out for Joseph. But remember, Joseph is good looking. So let's look at chapter 39, verse six. Now Joseph was handsome and good looking and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. 
He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although he spoke, she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, and while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Jump down to verse 19. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. So here in this story, we learn a few things. The most important thing we learn in this story is that Joseph follows the rules. Joseph does the right thing. Even when Joseph could be drunk with power and authority, Joseph chooses to do the right thing. Potiphar's wife is portrayed as a lush of sorts. Um, and as I referenced at the beginning of this, if you watch um, the video that's on YouTube, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. This is Joan Collins here, who is Potiphar's wife, which I just want to say is delicious. It's just fantastic. Um, and so we've got Potiphar's wife here as this lush, and she is a seductress of sorts, trying to get this cute young man, Joseph, to come and lie with her. Potiphar must be distracted, busy, separated, whatever you want to say, because she seems to have a lot of time in order to pursue Joseph. But Joseph is going to do the right thing. Joseph is going to resist her and do the work he's been given to do. He says, how could I do a great wickedness and sin against God? It's important for us to know that as the storyteller is creating this arc, Joseph's not just a rule follower. He is, but he's more than that. Joseph is faithful to God. This is a critical idea because Joseph's faithfulness to God is what will ultimately deliver him. Now, we're going to... Mm, nope, you know what? We're going to keep going and then I'm going to say what I was going to say. So, ultimately, Potiphar's wife dupes Joseph, takes advantage of him, tells Potiphar what happened, and Joseph is thrown into prison. Let's keep going in the story, just a few more verses. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So here we get an explicit reference to Joseph's faithfulness to God. Joseph's faithfulness is why God remains faithful to him. Now, I'll say that again. The way that the storyteller is structuring the story is very important. Judah, not faithful to God, means God is not faithful to him. Joseph, 
faithful to God means God is faithful to him. Now, theologically speaking, let's let's put that idea aside because we can take issue with that if we want to about God's faithfulness, depending on us, but let's put that aside. And instead, let's take a look at what this means for the storyteller. Remember, the people writing these stories are in exile in Babylon. And what that means is they are trying to answer the critical question, what went wrong, right? Why, if things were going so well, would God allow the Babylonians to take them over? And it's important that they understood that God allowed that, right? They're not really questioning whether God was strong enough to overwhelm the Babylonians. No, if the Babylonians came in and sacked their city and took them into exile, then God allowed that. So why? Is it that God chose not to be faithful to them? Or is it because they had stopped being faithful to God that God left them? We can see here in the way that the story is being told that the storytellers have sort of landed on the answer. And the answer is, when we remain faithful to God, God remains faithful to us. Here, Joseph is in prison. And yet, even in prison, because Joseph is faithful to God, God is faithful to Joseph and helps Joseph prosper and thrive in prison. Prison is kind of like captivity, right? And these Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. And it is very important for them to believe that if they remain faithful in their own captivity, that God will be with them and ultimately help them thrive, prosper, and get out, right? To be released, to be freed, to go home. And so these Israelites in captivity in Babylon, are telling the story of Joseph not as a fun story that they remember, but as critical to their own psychology, to the way that they are sustaining themselves while they are in exile. This is a very important idea for us because it helps us to understand the thought process of the people who themselves are in captivity in Babylon. And I will make a note that we've got another story about a young man who is very faithful, who is very good at lots of things, and God makes him prosper, and he too is in captivity, jailed, and he too is kept safe. Daniel, right? Daniel's story is a story that actually is supposed to take place in the exile, right? Daniel is one of those Jews in exile in Babylon, and his faithfulness means God remains faithful to him, and God delivers him from prison, from captivity, from the people who are the worldly powers. And so when they tell the story of Joseph, they're telling that story of Joseph on top of this story of Daniel, part and parcel, to yoke them together to reinforce this idea that remaining faithful to God will help them be delivered in the end. All right, so I don't see any questions. Anyone have any? We are at the end of chapter 39 in the second section with Potiphar's wife. No questions so far? Oh, come on, y'all. Ask a question. I love a question, so don't leave me hanging. Um, 
if you don't have a question, that's fine. I won't take it personally. Um, we'll just keep moving on. So we have done now chapters 38 and 39, and now we're moving on to chapter 40. Chapter 40, Joseph is in prison. Joseph's in prison, but not alone, right? Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now, at this point, they both have a dream. Skip down to verse 9. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream... There was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days... Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this place. So the cupbearer has had a dream, and he has told his dream to Joseph, and Joseph has interpreted his dream. And remember, Joseph is a dream interpreter. And the cupbearer is likely going to be pretty pleased with the way that Joseph interpreted this dream because he's only got to be in prison three days and he's going to be restored and he's going to be back in Pharaoh's court. And the cupbearer is not the only one who's kind of excited about the dream interpretation. We find out that the baker was excited as well. Look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable... Okay, that's really funny to me, that line, because the baker is probably sitting there with his own dream thinking, I'm not so certain about this dream, but hey, you know, the cupbearer got a good interpretation. Maybe I will too. So back to verse 16. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There I was, three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a pole, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Yikes. Not exactly the cupbearer interpretation. Joseph has this reputation of being a dream interpreter, but the cupbearer and the chief baker, they didn't know Joseph from Adam. And so they come into this prison, and they both have dreams, and in ancient Egypt, dreams were meant to be ways to predict the future, right? Dreams are not like the dreams we have now. They're not understood to be. Dreams were understood to be some kind of gift from the beyond, some kind of gift from God or a God or whatever, and that those dreams, if properly interpreted, could actually help teach people something about the future, maybe a decision that they should make or a place that they should go or a job that they should take or a person that they should marry, you name it. Dreams were really meant to be ways to help make decisions or in this case, to tell the future. Joseph's dream interpretation 
would not have been seen as like a parlor trick. And that's important for us to know because for us, dream interpretation can definitely seem a little flaky. Um, and if any of you are dream interpreters, I apologize, no offense. Um, I can remember in my hometown, there was a little building we would drive by regularly and in the window was one of those red palms. And as a kid, I didn't know what that was. Um, I figured out later that there is a palm reader in that building and palm reading is like dream interpretation to us, right? It can seem um, anti-scientific, but back then, Dream interpretation was actually seen as a decently scientific way to try and see the future, to make decisions. Um, now, we are all relatively learned people, and that will sound crazy. But I want to bring something to bear on science in general, right? Anytime any test is done, anytime an experiment is run, anytime a theory is challenged in science, there is always some kind of interpretation made, right? Even with really great scientific method, there is always a need to interpret results, right? Interpret data. In a sense, in the ancient world, the interpretation of dreams is kind of like the interpretation of a test or an experiment. And if you do this regularly and with great frequency, you can, as a dream interpreter, begin to gain some prominence, right? If you do it right, and I would say get a little lucky, then a dream interpreter can rise up in the ranks. And we know that, at least in Egypt, the wise men were dream interpreters. They're the ones that were kind of the magicians and the interpreters and that sort of stuff. So, when these two people, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, come into prison, things have not gone well, life is not okay, and they start to have dreams, they understand that something is trying to happen, right? God or the gods or whomever are trying to get a message across to them. And I can imagine that they're sitting in prison and they're saying, how can we figure out what this means, right? Because the dream interpreters are not in prison. The dream interpreters are at Pharaoh's court. And there's Joseph, who says kind of casually, right? Hey, I can interpret some dreams. And so they tell Joseph their dreams and one gets a pretty favorable interpretation. The other does not. Now I see we've got a question. Oh yes, David asked, do the people in Joseph's time view dreams as messages from God? For sure. There was always this sense that dreams were trying to tell people something. Um, and so whenever someone had a very clear dream, there was a desire to try and interpret what does that dream mean? I, I will say, just in a personal sense, I don't dream. And someone here in class likely knows that that means something about me. I don't know. Um, but I really am not a person who dreams. Um, but I do know a lot of people who they dream regularly, right? I mean, most nights they have some kind of dream. And if they can remember the dream, then I imagine it kind of sticks with them, right? What is it that we're working on? I mean, nowadays we, I would all, I, I would imagine that we all likely would interpret dreams as 
the working out of something in our subconscious, right? Maybe a fear, a concern, a hope, a dream, something like that is being articulated in the dreams we have at night. But I certainly would not take off the table the idea that we are working on our purpose and our ministry as disciples and God is working on us to transform our hearts and minds. And as that work is happening during the day, why wouldn't that work continue at night? And so I would have no problem saying that dreams are not literal messages from God that we're supposed to hear and interpret. But what if dreams were, in a sense, a way for us to allow our masks and our veneers and our pride and our ego to kind of check themselves, right? To get out of the way. And in a sense, in that subconscious, allow the work that God is trying to do on us to perhaps rise up a little bit, become a bit more clear, help us to understand what perhaps we're being called to do in some way. So dream interpretation might sound a little flaky, but I want to kind of look at this from a more charitable or generous position that what the ancient Israelites knew about perhaps how God works is not too different in concept from the way that we believe God works on us. So let's get back to this story because Joseph has interpreted these dreams from the cupbearer and the baker and let's see what happens. Jump to verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cup bearing, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But the chief baker he hanged, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is a very interesting moment, right? This end of chapter 40, because Joseph has successfully interpreted these dreams. The baker, poor thing, is dead, so we're going to just let him go. But focus on the cupbearer, right? The cupbearer gets thrown in prison, has a dream, has this random young man interpret the dream, and the interpretation is, in three days, this great thing will happen. Okay, so hang on. The cupbearer is in prison, uncertain about what is going to happen, right? He has no idea what his future holds. And here this young guy says, hey, your dream is telling you that things are going to be great. And they're not going to be great, like, over the course of the rest of your life. No, they're going to be great in three days, okay? That's not long. And so in three days, his dream interpretation comes true. And yet we see the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. I find that to be a remarkable moment because if I were thrown into prison without any real way out, not knowing what was going to come, and three days later I was freed after some kid told me I would be, you know who I wouldn't forget? Joseph. I would not forget him because it's only been three days and... His interpretation came true. 
This moment of being forgotten is one of those narrative loops that happens a few times to Joseph. Joseph is forgotten here, and we will not see this year, but if you go beyond Genesis, in the first few verses of Exodus, the way that we transition from this period of time, Joseph, I mean, Joseph and his brothers, you know, Jacob, the whole family, to the time of Moses is a simple little verse. There arose a Pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph, right? Joseph is forgotten a few times. And so first, Joseph is forgotten here. Then he will be remembered. We're going to get to that next week. But Joseph being forgotten is part of a narrative loop that is part of the way that the storytellers reinforce Joseph's faithfulness, right? Joseph is likely excited that this cupbearer has been restored into the court because he explicitly said, hey, when this happens, would you please tell Pharaoh about me? Joseph, in a sense, knows his worth. Joseph is in prison and he knows, listen, if I could just get out of here, what happened with Potiphar is what would happen with the Pharaoh, right? Joseph would very quickly rise up because he is faithful to God. God is faithful to him. God has given him skills. He can use those skills to help Pharaoh like he used those skills to help Potiphar. And so if he's sitting in front of a guy who in three days is going to be back in front of Pharaoh, he says, please remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me so that he can get out of prison. And yet the cupbearer forgets. But Joseph, even after that, remains faithful to God. Joseph becomes this icon for us. And over and over and over again, when people do wrong by Joseph, Joseph is able to differentiate between the people who did wrong and God. Joseph's faithfulness stays rested and rooted in God, even though life does not happen as he wants. And that's such a helpful lesson for us. It is so helpful for us to read Joseph as not just a fun, entertaining, dramatic story, but as a story of the fidelity of faith. How often do we, when life does not go the way we want, somehow pin that on God? We have, in our culture, countless stories of people who have bad things happen in their life and then in some way twist them around to be part of God's plan or part of God's reality or a desire from God to somehow hurt us. But how wrong are we to believe that God is intending hurtful things for us? How wrong are we to think that God would leave us alone? Because if there's something that we have learned from our gospel lessons, it's that God is with us always, always. We are the ones that turn away from God. And here we have this excellent story of Joseph where he remains faithful. And it's part of his fidelity and his faithfulness that helps him to navigate the hard moments of his life and then thrive in the good. Ah, I see a question. Elizabeth says, how would 
Joseph know the cupbearer forgot him? That's a good question. I am making an assumption, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Um, let me tell you though why I make the assumption. So here we have in the story a pretty quick turnaround. Cupbearer is only in prison for those three days and then he's out and then he's been restored. And if this is like any prison anywhere, right? Messages are coming back and forth and they would certainly have known the baker is dead and the cupbearer is restored, right? So if the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph, it is almost certain that Pharaoh would be interested enough to inquire about Joseph. Now, maybe Joseph's not getting out of prison because of this, but wouldn't it be, makes, it would make sense to me that Pharaoh would be interested in finding out more about this kid in the prison who interpreted the cupbearer's dreams because dream interpretation was quite important. When no one comes and when no rumor is out there that there is a guy in the prison who interpreted the dream, then I think it's safe enough for us to assume that Joseph in that place would know that the cupbearer had maybe not forgotten, but the cupbearer had not told his story. And perhaps that's the fairer way to tell this story is that Joseph would not, Joseph may have thought that the cupbearer forgot. The storyteller obviously tells the story that way, but I think Joseph in prison would have simply known that the cupbearer had not told the story to Pharaoh because he's still in prison. Any other questions out there? We are near the end of our lesson. I'd love if you've got any questions about any of these chapters, 38, 9, and 40, you know, these are relatively dynamic stories. Um, a quick glimpse of what's coming up. So today is April 8th. We have three more weeks of this Bible study, all right? We will meet next week, April 15th, then on the 22nd, and then on the 29th, and that's the last day of class. So the last Wednesday in April is the final day of our Genesis Bible study, and so I hope that you will join me for the next three weeks. Um, just as a quick note, uh, we will be looking at chapters 41 through 43, then 44 through 46, and then 47 through 50. I'll say this once more. In a week, 41 through 43. In two weeks, on April 22nd, 44 through 46. And then the last class, April 29th, 47 through 50. Those are going to be the last three for our Genesis study. Not seeing any other questions, we will close our time together with just a real quickie. Next week, we're going to be in Pharaoh's court. Joseph is going to get out of prison he will be discovered by Pharaoh, remembered by the cupbearer, and then Joseph will begin to thrive in Pharaoh's court. And then we get all of the intrigue of the feast and famine with Pharaoh's dream and his family coming in from outside to Egypt. Um, I see one question from Michelle. Would Pharaoh think that Joseph is influencing his behavior by predicting it? <laughs> That's a good question, Michelle. We'll get to that next week. Um, so save it. I'll write it down. Um, and 
Oh, thank you, Wendy. Encore bonus class. We'll see. Thank you very much for that. Um, and just a reminder, we are in Holy Week. This is Holy Wednesday. And St. Michael has worship services every day of Holy Week. We begin Monday night. We'll continue all the way through Saturday night at 7 p.m. streamed live both here on Facebook and also at stmichael.org slash Holy Week. If you go to stmichael.org slash Holy Week, you'll be able to view all of our special Holy Week services, which includes a special service for children and families at, Good, at noon on Good Friday. We are telling the story of Monday Thursday and Good Friday in an age-appropriate way for our youngest children that does include a special Stations of the Cross for children. And so if you've got children in your life or know someone who does, tune in at noon on Good Friday for that special service or visit stmichael.org slash holyweek to see those videos on demand after they have aired live. And finally, Easter is coming. And so join us for Easter celebrations this weekend, both here and at stmichael.org. Thank you all very much. I hope you have a really rich, excellent, and deeply satisfying Holy Week wherever you are. Stay safe and healthy, and I will see you back here next Wednesday as we continue our Genesis study. Bye, everybody.